This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanen, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 90, and I am interviewing Anita Johnston, author of Eating in the Light of the Moon. We're talking about the neuroscience and psychology behind our body image and relationship with food, how to get back in touch with who you are, and how to feel feelings. I know nobody wants to talk about that, but I I promise you it's entertaining and it's good and it's done in a way that's going to make you feel better about doing it. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this podcast at summerinanin.com forward slash nine zero because it's episode 90. Before we begin, I want to mention three things. Number one, one of my favorite online publications, Everyday Feminism, is at risk of shutting down. Everyday Feminism has been a publication that has taught me so much about how to be a better ally and feminism and body positivity and thin privilege and everything else. And some of my favorite writers are on this publication. I link to them a lot. And if you have a few spare dollars, I encourage you to help save their publication. They're looking for donations. I'm not getting told to do this. I'm just saying this on the show because I really, truly care about their publication. I really believe in what they're doing. And I think they're one of the best websites out there. Go to everydayfeminism.com to donate to them to keep them alive. I have done so. And I hope that if you have some extra money, sacrifice a unicorn latte and send it to Everyday Feminism to keep them going because it is really important. Second, if you want to do something else, you can leave a review for this podcast like this one from Mama Mimi's. I love the passion and the no fear attitude. I wish more people could hear this podcast and feel empowered in their life and their bodies. Summer is a life changer. Thank you, Mama Mia's. I wonder if that's my friend Mia, who's a mama. I don't know, maybe if it is Mia, I love you. But whoever it was, thank you. So keep the reviews coming. I would greatly appreciate it if you went to iTunes to to do that for me. It helps others to find this show and keep it going as well. So go to iTunes, click ratings and reviews and click to leave a review or give it a rating. You can also go to summerinandin.com forward slash review to find a direct link to that. Second, don't forget you can get the free 10 day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. But seriously, go donate to Everyday Feminism. All right, today's guest is Anita Johnston. Anita Johnston PhD, is a depth psychologist, storyteller, and author of Eating in the Light of the Moon, How Women Can Transform Their Relationships with Food Through Myth, Metaphor, and Storytelling, which has been published in six languages along with numerous book chapters and articles in professional journals. She has been working in the field of women's issues for over 35 years and is currently the clinical director of IPONO Hawaii which has outpatient eating disorder programs in Honolulu, the big island of Hawaii, and a residential treatment program in Maui. I'm trying my best to say Hawaii, if you didn't notice. (laughs) She is the co-creator of the Light of the Moon Cafe, an interactive e-course, Women's Circle, and online workbook for eating in the Light of the Moon. She is best known for integrating metaphor and storytelling into her training as a clinical psychologist to explain the complex issues that underlie struggles with eating, body and body image. This is a great episode. Anita has a really unique perspective on the situation. She tells a lot of stories, which I think is awesome because it awakens that side of our brain that is typically dormant, and it allows us to really think about things in a new perspective. So I can really appreciate the way that she approaches this, and I think you're going to like what she is teaching us today. Let's get started. Hi, Anita. Welcome to the show. Hi, Summer. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for being here. I'm looking forward to talking to you about all the different components of your approach because I read your book, Eating in the Light of the Moon, and I thought that you you spoke to some really powerful things. 
Oh, well, good. I'm, yes. I'm looking forward to that. Just a different perspective than I think a lot of people have heard before. So it'll mm-hmm. be great. So why don't you tell everybody how you got into this work and what what prompted you to write Eating in the Light of the Moon? Wow. Well, it was a long time ago. And I've always been involved in women and cultural issues. Uh, I grew up on the island of Guam in the Pacific Ocean and uh, in a matrilineal culture. And with a lot of multicultural influences and people in my extended family from different cultures. And so that's always been something that has fascinated me. And so it wasn't until after I had gotten my doctorate and I was supervising a young psychology intern who was working on looking at the the incidence of eating disorders in Hawaii, that I even realized how many people were struggling with eating and and weight issues and uh, that they were female. (laughs) At least, you know, that was our experience. And so this seemed to be the most compelling, intriguing issue for me. And so I was meeting with this intern regularly and another woman who had struggled with her own eating issues and resolved them. And so the three of us would meet every week and talk about what we were seeing. Now, remember, this is back in the early 1980s. So not much had been written And so we would meet every week just to figure out what was going on. And we kept saying, wow, there should be a center to support these people. And after about the fifth time, we looked at each other, we laughed and we went, all right, we'll do it. And so we created a center and it was women of all ages, all ethnicities, all sizes would come. And so I would try to figure out, okay, what is going on here? First of all, why is it females that are showing up? They were girls and women. Second of all, why these particular individuals? And third, why was the struggle around food and fat and eating and body. And and then I just, I was curious to see, well, what's the bottom line here? What's the common denominator that's connecting all of these people that are struggling? And uh, what I, what I discovered, because I'm, I'm a storyteller and as a psychologist, I'm a trained story listener. I decided, well, I'm, I'm going to just listen to their stories and see if I can figure this out. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered is that they were like the child in the fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. And in the sense that they had an uncanny ability to perceive subtle realities. They could see the invisible and read between the lines and they could perceive hypocrisy and they could sense when things were not okay, even when everything, everyone around them said things were just fine. But they were living in a world that didn't appreciate that. So so in the story of the Emperor's New Clothes, you have this very vain emperor. It's, it's pretty timely these days, this story. But this vain emperor who didn't care much about ruling his kingdom was mostly interested in fine clothing and jewelry. And, and so he got a reputation for this. And, and a couple of con artists uh, came into town and they said, well, we're tailors, but our clothing is so fine that only those fit for their station in life can even see it. And so, of course, the, the emperor was impressed and he commissioned a whole new wardrobe and all the people who worked for the emperor carried on about the fabulous clothing and even because they didn't want to lose their jobs and even the emperor himself, you know, went on and on about his magnificent new outfits because he didn't want people to think he wasn't fit for his station in life. And, And so eventually the con artists, they leave town laughing all the way to the bank and there's a procession and the emperor is wearing his new outfit and of course he's totally naked. But all the townspeople are ooing and eyeing and talking about the magnificent clothing and and there's a small child in the crowd that said in a very loud voice, but mommy, the emperor has no clothes on at all. And when this child spoke, it created a ripple throughout the crowd and everyone saw the emperor for the fool that he was. So what I was finding is that these individuals who were struggling were like that child, but they weren't living in a fairy tale and no one was listening to them. And so what happened is they decided they had to dim their light. They had to diminish this capacity to to perceive subtle realities because what they wanted, what all of us want and all of us are hungry for is a sense of belonging. But they confused belonging with fitting in. 
So when you have a sense of belonging, that's when you stay connected to self as you connect with others. With fitting in, what happens is you try to act like and look like and think like and talk like and do stuff like how you think others want you to act and think and talk and look, and you abandon yourself in the process. And so this way of living started to spill over into all all sorts of areas of their life. But one way or another, mostly through being put on a diet, they began to use food in a way in which they tried to dim their light and try to fit in and abandon the essence of who they were, their true selves, the uniqueness of their very beings. And so I saw, okay, my job was to help them reconnect to that and see, you know, the astounding beauty that was already there. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got into it. That's so great. And uh, I'm curious to know then the influence of parents and our school structure on on this, because I think like you said, children are born with this ability to intuit and notice and mm-hmm. say things. They're unfiltered, they're mm-hmm. uninhibited. Mm-hmm. And then it gets yeah. chipped away. And I, and, you know, thinking about the way I think, I think obviously parents Mm -hmm. influence this as well, but also the way that our education system is set Mm -hmm. up. What it, yeah. Well, there, yeah, there's systems all over. I mean, nowadays it's it's horrific. There are states in in the U.S. where they're sending kids home on their report cards with with their BMIs as though that even means anything, mm-hmm. and it's being used in in shaming ways, and so I, it's totally out of control. And I, but I think those that that struggled the most were those that early on could perceive that things weren't right, but then they stopped believing themselves and started really, I I don't want to say caving in because the pressure is immense. It's not just in families. It's not just in school systems. It's in our, in, in governmental systems. It's in, you know, religious systems. And this, this whole idea that who you are, the way you are is not okay, and you have to be different. And and then we have this whole situation where there are a lot of people that are making a lot of money over us feeling badly about the way we look. Mm-hmm. Now you throw that into the mix, and that's the real trickle down that we start to get. And, and, it, and it, it just infiltrates every place. I I'm fascinated by it. I'm horrified by it. Um, I didn't grow up in that culture. So I'm a bit of an anthropologist in some ways, just going, wow, what is this? And why is it? And whose idea is this in the first place? Um, You know, that's where I start wondering, well, wait a minute, who came up with this idea that the ideal woman's body is, is to have like a a flat or maybe concave belly and thighs that don't touch. And, and it's like, wait, where did that come from? Mm -hmm. Um, And then how did everybody drink the Kool-Aid? You know what I'm saying? It's like, how has it been that powerful? And I think, you know, it goes beyond the education system and, and, and families. And I don't know that I have the answers. Actually, Mm -hmm. I'm continuing to ask the questions. And I think they're important questions, by the way. I think, you know, part of the problem is, is certainly the individuals I've worked with, it sometimes didn't even occur to them to ask. There's a story that I like to tell about this nightingale who's in the forest and she's singing and singing and singing and just enjoying the, the sound of her voice going through the treetops and, and along comes a pig and a crow and the crow starts yelling at the at the nightingale would you just shut up already you're polluting the forest with your horrible sounds you know cut the racket and the and the nightingale says well 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 no we nightingales we're known for our beautiful song and the crow says i don't think so that's just the most horrible thing i've ever heard and they're fighting and the pig who's wandering through the forest says whoa 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 wait a minute you know um i'm a connoisseur of fine music so why don't we have a contest and i'll be the judge And so they agreed. And the nightingale sings her song and the crow caws and the pig immediately declares the crow the winner. And the nightingale bursts into tears and and the crow says, I can't believe you. Not only are you just a horrible singer, but but you're a lousy loser. 
And the nightingale said, I- I'm not crying because I lost. I'm, I'm crying because a pig was my judge. Now, this is not a story about pigs. It's about consider the source. Mm-hmm. When somebody is judging you, it's well worth considering the source, where they're coming from, what they have to gain. And, and of course, when we're young, we don't know to do that. So someone teases us about our body size and we don't know to go, oh, what's going on in their life that they think my body is something to talk about in their business in the first place. We don't know to do that. But as adults, we can. We can do that. And I think we need to. Yeah. And I think it also comes back to, you know, we're, we're, we're prevented from having original ideas and thoughts because we're told to follow a certain script in order to please, you know, teachers and parents and and things like that. And so, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, when I meet with women, they're very creative, sensitive Mm -hmm. souls. And Mm -hmm. because they, you know, they were, they were told that, you know, their ideas weren't right, or they, they quote, unquote, you know, Mm -hmm. failed at something because they expressed Mm -hmm. their original thoughts they develop this belief that who they are isn't isn't right. And so like you said, they dim it. And so instead of going and being themselves, Mm -hmm. they're trying to, you know, receive the praise and the accomplishments and the accolades by conforming to what somebody else desires as as the best. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, it's not only just to please others. It's for many people, it's a it's a necessary survival issue. Yes, you know, so being accommodating and keeping your mouth shut and you know smiling when you you're really angry. In some instances, that's how people were able to stay on this planet. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's so, in our DNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a long time. And and however, that being said. I really believe that the time has come for that to be shifting. And I believe with every fiber of my being that those who have struggled in this way, they're the people the world is waiting for because they, they, they carry within them this capacity to perceive these subtle realities. And once they find their voice, it's going to help. It's going to help the whole world because, you know, there are things that, ought not to be kept secret. There's there's two kinds of secrets, the way I see it. There are those that are sacred and those that are shameful. And in the absence of something being treated as sacred, it becomes shameful. And our truth of our experience is sacred. And so when we stop treating it as though it's something to be ashamed of, things really shift. Mm-hmm. It's very powerful. And so how do you make that shift? Well, I, I think in many, many ways, I I happen to believe that the struggle with eating and food and weight is, is a way, is a portal to make that shift. And I'm not talking about resolving all the issues, but they, they launch you into asking the right questions. What's this about? You know, not doing simply soul searching. Soul searching is important, but also looking at what's going on around you rather than going into oblivion or hiding your head in the sand or or going into a great deal of denial about what's really going on. So I think following the breadcrumbs, actually, or following your thoughts about your body, I think I think that's really one of the ways in which you can make the shift. I have another story about that. You want a story? <laughs> sure, but can I can I can yes. I backtrack yes. you for one yes. sec? Because yes. I just yes. want to clarify that that mm-hmm. because I'm because you use the word weight struggle a couple times, and I just right. when you say that I'm you mean body image issues because the weight is not actually right. Like we're they, yeah, I, I use it in terms of people see the struggle. Yes, is okay, weight. I knew that. I wanted everyone else food. listening to understand yes. that <laughs> we're yes. on the same page and, there. Thanks. And that's honestly, that's the shift I'm talking about. Yes, is to see that it's not about that. And that there's way more going on. And but when you say, okay, I'm going to look at this with new eyes, then you start to see, yeah, it's not about that at all that there's way more going on than meets the eye. And it's hard because we live in a culture that is so literal. 
And that's what makes it difficult for those that see things symbolically, that see these subtle realities, because they're often not, there's often not concrete evidence, right? You, you feel these things, you intuit these things. And yet we live in a culture that, that is so literal that in some ways it gets used against us. And, and this is for me where neuroscience has been helpful for me to understand. Wait, how is this happening? So if you can think of the way our brains are when we're little, and let's say even before age seven, the way the small child's mind works, it goes like this. Because of the structure of the brain, the frontal lobes are not, they don't fully come on board until you're in your mid-20s. And that's the more abstract conceptualization. That's more cause and effect. It's not fully on board. So, And it's, it's barely getting on board when you're a little child. So the way that a child's mind works is it goes something like this. Bad things happen. I feel bad. I must be bad. Now, mommy and daddy got a divorce. I, I feel bad. It must be my fault. That's how it gets translated for a small child. Yes. Now, imagine just, you know, you're not going to have to stretch your imagination much for this, but imagine living in a culture that says fat is bad. Mm-hmm. So then what starts to happen? It goes something like this. Bad things happen. I feel bad, fat. I am bad, fat, and that's bad. Yeah. You see, it, it gets linked in, and the neural pathways then get laid. And neural pathways, they're a very real thing. They're like grooves that thought patterns can travel down. And, and, and when you go down them the first couple of times, it's like a sled at the top of the hill. You make a little pathway. But you keep going down that pathway over and over and over again, and it just becomes automatic. And so what, if you want to have another thought process, it takes a little bit of work. You have to be able to look at things a little differently. And eventually then that becomes more of the, the super highway that you, your mind can start to travel on. But it takes a while. It takes, and that's the shift, you know, that, that has to occur mm-hmm. um, within your mind and within the brain. And so that's one of the ways I explain, well, how did this happen in the first place? Well, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a culture that had that message. So I, I look at this and go, wow. And I, and I watched it. I raised two daughters. I watched it as this message got louder and louder and louder. Fat is bad. Mm-hmm. And I saw how children processed it and, 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 then, and as adults, how they continued to process it. So yeah. yeah, that's so interesting that you that you weren't exposed to that because it does give you that really unique perspective on what's possible when that that's not there. So were, I mean, were there issues with body image or eating disorders in in the environment or the culture like in Guam where you no, grew up? Not there are now for sure. But yeah, I, this is I'm talking the 1950s, 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, this this is right after World War Two, the island had been occupied for three years during World War Two. It was really, you know, and quite isolated. It's far. It's another it eight is. hour flight from Hawaii just mm-hmm. to get there. You know, so this is back in the day before there were plane flights a lot. You know, I was a child when the planes, you know, the jets finally came on board. So and we had we had TV, but it was black and white one station. Nobody watched it. It was ridiculous. So, yeah, we and we had, a you know, there were a couple of magazines. There was, oh, Ladies Home Journal and there was 17. And, you know, I mean, that and that was it. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it was a very different world. And, but I think, you know, everybody can be curious about the world we're in today. I mean, you know, and I think you have to be curious to say, well, wait, why is this this way? Rather than just assuming that's just how it is, because that's what we've been told. And worse, how it should be, yes. because that's been told. Yeah. And I want to come back to you mentioned before the difference between belonging and fitting in and the importance of, of belonging. So Mm -hmm. I think when, when some, when people are doing this work, what I notice is they've been fitting in Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. really hard Mm -hmm. to break free and potentially Mm -hmm. lose your tribe in -hmm. order to be more loyal to who you are. Mm-hmm. So how does one go about cultivating a sense of, of belonging? Well, I, I think the key is never abandon yourself. And that's hard to do 
when you've been encouraged to abandon yourself, to look at things the way somebody else thinks you should be looking at things and to say things the way you think somebody else should be because you want them to like you. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's really a process of untangling and really asking asking yourself different questions. So, for example, one of the metaphors I like to use is in Hawaii, the eel uh, lives in a hole in the ocean and the lobster makes its home at the mouth of this hole. And this is a great setup for the eel because it has a lobster on its doorstep keeping it out for predators with one of its antenna. But the problem is that eels eat lobsters. <laughs> so it's not, not the easiest arrangement for the lobster. And what the lobster has to do is have one antenna pointing out, keeping an eye out for predators, but the other antenna has to point in and keep an eye out on the eel. So many of us are like lopsided lobsters. And what I found is especially people that, you know, were feeling disconnected from themselves and feeling bad about who they were. And they have amazing outer antennas, exquisite, unbelievable. They could they could walk into a room, pick up on the vibe and pick up on what other people's expectations were of them and provide those expectations before that person even knew that was going on. I mean, that's how good they are. But they would have lousy inner antennas. So what that means is that they became be- way better at perceiving and responding to the expectations of others than they were at perceiving and responding to their own needs and feelings. Mm-hmm. And so then that creates a state of deprivation. It's it's like writing checks and not making deposits. And that deprivation becomes a really big hunger and it becomes a big loneliness because really you're disconnected from self. So in a way, you have to change the questions you ask yourself. The way I see it is put that outer antenna on automatic pilot. It's going to serve you the rest of your life. It's fabulous. But now focus on the inner antenna. And the way you do that is by checking in. So instead of saying, what's she going to think if I say this? How is he going to react if I do this? What do they think about the way I'm handling the situation? You ask yourself, how do I feel about what she just said? What's my reaction to what he did? How do I feel about being here with these people at this point in time? Tuning in, tuning in, tuning in. So that's, that's the way you create a sense of belonging because you're tuned into yourself as you are participating. And, and in the beginning, many people have to isolate because they think, well, I either can be myself and be by myself, or I can be in relationships and abandon myself at the doorstep. And so the task then becomes, how can I be myself and be in relationships at the same time? Yeah, and you you met, you also use the word loneliness being a disconnection from self, whereas I think most yes. of us perceive loneliness as being yes. alone. Yes, and that, and again, for me, there's a difference between being lonely and alone. You can be in a crowd of people and be lonely. You can be a, a, a by yourself and and not feel lonely. So for me, when I track it, ultimately, and when I follow along. What is at the core of loneliness is disconnect from self. And, and by self, I mean your true self, the essence of who you are, not your ideas about who you're supposed to be. Oh, I'm supposed to be a teacher and I'm supposed to be a mother or I'm supposed to whatever. No, your, your essential self, that part of you that feels and, you know, is experiencing life moment to moment. Yeah, that's really, that's so important. And then tying this back to the belonging, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, social, Mm -hmm. social connections are also important. And I think sometimes Mm -hmm. we can find ourselves feeling a lack of that once we've started to know ourselves. Right. It's the ugly ugly duckling story sometimes. You have to go find your peeps, which is why what you're doing is so important. You're letting people know, oh, yeah, there's my tribe. That's why I created uh, the Light of the Moon Cafe. It's an online circle, a woman's circle that that's sort of a respite from the the communities that we typically live in that are fat phobic and, and, you know, so fearful of emotional expression and all of that. So I think you do have to find and, and it's important to note they are out there. There are the, the tribe is there. And it's the tribe that's not based in any one particular location. You know, we have women from all over the world. And we have a forum and they communicate and they support each other. And it's it's a real relief to know that. And again, that's why I think 
you know, what you're doing is, is so important because we've been disconnected from each other as well as ourselves. It's been a divide and conquer strategy, frankly. That's, that's, I think it's time for that to be over. <laughs> yes, yes. And now I, w- I would love to explore the, the feminine versus the masculine sides because mm-hmm. that is something that really interested me in that I haven't spent a lot of time understanding that perspective mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So yeah, would you, would you be able to explain for people who, yes. when because when, when I, you know, I read the book, so I understand mm-hmm. what you mean by it, but mm-hmm. people listening might be, might have no right. clue. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it's a little tricky because the language is tricky. And unfortunately, the language sounds like we're talking about gender and we're not. Yes. Um, and I'll explain why this, like, in, now these terms are called yin and yang in Asian traditions, but I come out of the Jungian tradition. And the reason why they use the terms masculine and feminine for these are archetypal energies is that they, when they show up in our dreams and Jungians do a lot of dream work, they show up in the forms of male and female figures. So, so it, you know, I, I have to say that when I'm talking about masculine and feminine in this way, I'm talking about principles and it's, and it's a duality that help just helps us understand sometimes what, what, what happens when we're in conflict, for example, or, or how to, how to get into balance. Mm-hmm. So the way that they use the term in, in terms of the energy is the, these are, principles that exist in all of us, whether we're male or female or trans or whatever. And the masculine is that energy that is logical, linear, goal, achievement oriented. It's action oriented. It has to do with, you know, moving in the external world. The feminine is more inner. It has to do with emotions and intuitions and instincts and the relationships between all things. So the way that gets played out in our lives, I, I see it as we, you need both and neither, neither one is better than the other. You know, we, but the problem is we live in a culture, in a Western culture that has overvalued the masculine principle of doing and achieving and accomplishing and, and what's valuable is how many letters are after your name and how much number is in the bank and how, how, what kind of car you drive and devalues the feminine emotional, intuitive, instinctual uh, qualities. And so because of that imbalance, many of us have, have internalized it and we're a little cockeyed ourselves. And to get into balance means to really bringing back an appreciation of your instinctual self, that she-wolf that lives within you, that you know knows when to eat and when not to eat and when to sleep and when to get up and when to move and when not to move and and all you know how to give birth i mean all that sort of stuff to claim that and and learn how to to be with emotions so that they're not bad and 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 how to work with your emotional guidance system and and to appreciate what intuition really is and bring that on board so that those two principles are in balance. And when they're in balance and they and they work in concert together, in Jungian terms, it's called the divine marriage. And the way I see it is, is the feminine holds your deep truth and your masculine takes it out into the world and you need both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not about one being better than the other or Never. one being dominant. But what you no. notice, obviously, the masculine being dominant yes. in women who come in with, you know, concerns about body image and disordered eating behaviors. Yes, but also other women is for most of us. Mm -hmm. That's the case. And again, because we are in this cultural soup, but I do see the conflict between the two sometimes get played out with eating and food issues. And, And so that reveals, oh, okay, here's where the imbalance is. Let's go in and take a look. Yeah. And so getting in touch with the, the feminine part is really Mm -hmm. integral, which I think is Mm -hmm. so difficult in a patriarchal society. Yes, it is because it's, it's dismissed. It's devalued, you know, in, in so many ways, subtle and dramatic. And so it's, it is hard to claim that and stand in it, but it's happening. 
You know, it's happening everywhere. I, you know, the feminine principle is rising and not to dominate the masculine, but just to bring things into balance so that, you know, there's equality for everybody and an appreciation of the diversity that life brings Mm -hmm. and the connectedness of everything. I think a lot of us are afraid of of the power of those emotions and the, the, the and the power of our of our intuition, you know, we, Oh yeah. <laughs> Cause we haven't been taught how to work with it. We've just been taught you're overreacting. You're too sensitive, you know, stopping so emotional, you know, it's, it's treated as though it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with our menstrual cycle. The same thing we're, we're told that, Oh, you know, she's, she's uh, PMSing. And so that's a bad thing. And, and I do a reframe that says, no, it's, premenstrual sensitivity and that's a good thing because you have access at that time to your guidance system of your emotions and instincts and intuitions in the most profound way who wouldn't want that if you know how to work with it yeah okay so then i have to ask you because i always feel like i can't trust any of those thoughts during that time because they're so inner critic dominated but so well, what like yeah how do i reframe yeah. that Okay. What, what happens is that those thoughts and feelings can be very intense if you've been keeping them at bay throughout the month. Okay. So when you're premenstrual, the, the, you're the closest to the truth. And all those feelings and thoughts will come rushing in and there will be distortion. So, you know, the key is to honor and respect those thoughts and feelings throughout the month. And, and with thoughts, you see, with thoughts, it's a, it's a matter of discernment. And, and the masculine principle is valuable here because it is discernment. It's like watching the clouds in the sky. You don't know, oh, does that mean it's going to rain or does that mean it, it, it's moving away? You know, you have to question your thoughts. Uh, if I believed every thought I had, I'd be totally insane. Yes. You know, I have ridiculous thoughts. I have entertaining thoughts. I have mean thoughts. And so I, there's a part of me that always has to be saying, well, was well, that true, Anita? Does that really fit? And with emotions, you you need to learn to ride them like the waves in the ocean. We're not taught that they come in, they peak, they pass. Then they'll come in and peak and pass. And and once you learn how to ride them, even when the big set comes in, and it does for all of us, we all have, you know, we're all going to experience, you know, the loss of a loved one, financial distress, medical crises. That that comes with a human condition. But if you understand how to ride the emotions, you'll realize, oh, they pass and. You know, I think that's one of the gifts of, of uh, menstrual craps, by the way, is that you can, you realize that, oh, okay, I can have something that really, really, really hurts, but I know two things. One, it will pass. And two, no damage is being done. Mm-hmm. So emotions can hurt, but they can't hurt us. They don't do damage. It's the suppression and inappropriate expression that can be damaging. But not the emotions themselves, they're energy. And, and they, ha- they have information. That's valuable. That's so interesting. I was having this exact conversation with somebody yesterday. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard an emotion can only last 90 seconds. Is that right? Like the wave of it, the initial kind of wave of it. So how that works, that's the work that comes from Pamela Peake. No, no, excuse me. Oh, she wrote Molecules of Emotion. Let me see if I can bring. uh, So there are two women. One wrote Molecules of Emotion, Candace Pert. And uh, the other wrote My Stroke of Insight. And basically what Candace Pert, who's a brilliant, brilliant scientist, who's not around, but if you, uh, if you want to read an amazing book, Molecules of Emotion, you'll see the patriarchy at work in the world of science. But she, what oh, she cool. discovered, a very amazing discovery, is that we ha- when we have an emotional experience, our body releases chemicals, neuropeptides, and that these neuropeptides are specific to specific emotions. So if you're angry, your body's going to release anger neuropeptides. And if you're sad, there'll be sad neuropeptides. Now, Candace Pert, I mean, uh, not Candace Pert, but she wrote my stroke. I'm bringing her name in my stroke of insight. Oh, I can't think of her name right now, but she wrote my stroke of insight. Oh, talked. When these, so what happens is when you, let's say you're driving along and somebody cuts you off and you slam on the brakes and you're pissed off. Now you're, you're going to, your brain is going to release a cascade of anger neuropeptides and it's going to flood into your system for 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. That's how long it's in your bloodstream unless, and here's the important part, 
unless you start telling yourself a story because you see the brain can't tell the difference between the actual experience and the story itself. So you start going, oh my God, I can't believe that asshole, blah, 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 more anger neuropeptides. And you get to work and you say, you won't believe what happened, more. So, so your body then becomes flooded with these um, neuropeptides and you stay in that angry state. But in, by themselves, without the story, they're good for 90 seconds. So I'll give you an example of how this works. And, you know, because I, I love these ideas, but I, I only like them insofar as they inform us as how we can apply them in our daily life. So I'll tell you an example. So when I discovered this, I was so excited. I, uh, this <laughs> I love this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> So I was, uh, I was with my husband, we were hanging out and he said to me, Anita, you know, if you go to the grocery store, I'll fix dinner. I said, okay, great. So the day goes on and, and he finally comes up to me and goes, I, I thought you were going to the grocery store. I went, well, yeah, but you know, in a while he goes, and he looks at the time. I said, okay, okay, I'll go right now. Cause I had no idea that, you know, he had things planned out a certain way. I thought I had plenty of time. Now, as I was walking out the door, he didn't know I I heard him, but I heard him mutter under his breath, inconsiderate. Ooh. Wow. Now I'm, now I'm mad. Yeah. Because, and so I'm driving to the store and I'm going, inconsiderate? How could he consider me? I cleaned up his dog's vomit twice today so he wouldn't be interrupted when he was writing a new song on the, on the guitar. And I was started going down my whole list of all the considerate things I did. Get, you know, and, and I get about halfway through my list and I realize, oh, my 90 seconds is up. <laughs> now what am I going to do, right? It's like, well, I can still, in my own mind, I'm justifying myself, getting more and more ticked off. But the thing is, when you, you keep releasing it, that creates inflammation. Mm -hmm. So I'm going, okay, so if I keep going down this path, nothing's happening to him. He's cruising. I'm flooding my body with inflammation. And of course, you know, inflammation leads to all kinds of problems. So I'm going back and forth going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, and then, and then, well, do you want inflammation or do you want, and cause I had to let go of the story. And so I started laughing because it was a ridiculous choice that I was having in my own mind. And when I got back home, I, I, I put the groceries on the counter. I said, guess what we're having for dinner? Inconsiderate chicken. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, it was only funny because I was no longer angry. Yeah. You see, I let go of the story. If I had not, if I'd stayed with it and kept going on and on and on, I would have plunked him down and said, guess what we're having for dinner? Inconsiderate chicken. And, we, and then we would have gone on and on and on about it. And I would have been flooding my body with anger and neuropeptides that again, if they, if there's not a problem with them, unless they, they're supposed to clear out, you're not supposed to live in them or they're not supposed to live in you. They are for 90 seconds. So how do you feel them without living in the story? Like how, and how do you, how do you process? Cause sometimes they last longer. Yeah. Well, they last longer cause you're running the story. Right. So you, you, then you kind of take a step back and you examine the story. Mm -hmm. So I have to tell you a quick story about, about how to do that. Yes. So this is a story about a king who had been on a, a hunting expedition and um, he'd been gone a long time. And when he returned and, and the whole hunting party galloped into the courtyard, he was met as he always was by his most, his closest companion, his most faithful servant, the dog that he had raised from the time she was a puppy. But what happened is that the dog, was, did something really weird. It, it started to run up to the hunting party and then started snarling and barking and spinning around and then running away and then coming back and snarling and barking and spinning around and running away. And the king said, oh my gosh, I've been gone so long. My dog's gone mad. So he started chasing after the dog as it ran through the corridors of the castle. And the dog then stopped abruptly at the entrance to the, the nursery of the king's firstborn and spun around and snarled and barked. And to his horror, the king saw that the dog's muzzle was covered with blood. And when he stepped into the nursery, he saw the walls were splattered with blood. And across the way was the infant's cradle overturned. The king was enraged at the betrayal of his closest friend that he pulled out his sword and plunged it into the dog's heart. And immediately he heard a cry and he ran across the room. And there, buried beneath the carcass of a dead wolf, was his infant child totally unharmed. Now, isn't that the worst story you've ever heard? Yeah, that gave me the chills. But I'm, I'm telling you the story because this is what we do internally with the stories we tell ourselves. So I'm going to decode this story so that you can understand what I'm trying to say here. 
And that all of us relate to the king, right? And that's with all these teaching stories. That's what, you know, we go, oh my God, if only, if only the king had paused just for a moment, pushed the pause button and, 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 you know, took a look at really what's going on. This tragedy could have been averted. We've all been there. We've all said, oh my God, if only I hadn't done this, or if only I, you know, if only I had taken a moment, I wouldn't have said that terrible thing or whatever. Yeah. And so we relate to the king, but in these teaching stories, just like in dreams, all the characters are aspects of our psyche. So who is the dog? The dog is our, our closest companion, our best friend. The dog is our body, the, our body that has been with us from the day we we're born and will stay with us until the day we die. So what happens for a lot of people when they get upset about something, they attack that which is closest to them. And for many people, it's their body. And, and so as horrible as this story is, it's no more horrible than what people do say about their own bodies. Now, who is the wolf? Because the wolf, we know, is the real culprit in this story. The wolf is the inner critic. It's that critical voice that you've internalized from the culture. And the wolf hangs with a whole pack of media wolves that is there to prey. To prey on what? The infant. That is the most unique aspect of who you really are. That's your true self. It's the most precious part of you that has come here to grow and to be. But you see, when we don't pause, when we don't stop to notice our thoughts, we we do a lot of damage to ourselves with those thoughts. And so that's how you push the pause button. You start to slow it down and start to notice where your thoughts go. And then you start to see the stories you tell yourself about what's happening and then you start to question them. Wait, is this really true? Is this really? So what happens to someone often because of the, what we're taught, and it's no one's fault. We're taught to do this in our culture. We're taught to think that I feel horrible that I, I didn't get that job. It must be because of my body size. Mm -hmm. To think like that. And it's mean. And, you know, it's mean in the culture, but it's also mean inside of ourselves. And one of the ways you, you can stop it is to learn how to push the pause button. And then is the baby the metaphor for finding that innocence and compassion within yourself, like to go and find that instead? Well, that's, the, I call it the soul self. Yeah. That's our true self. Our true self is, babies are born kind. Babies are, there, there aren't any bad babies. None of us, you know, all of us were babies, right? Everybody has been, you know, they aren't born mean or, and so that's the most precious part of ourselves. And, and it's our soul self. That's like, you know, the part we're wanting to grow here. We want to protect that part of ourselves. And so I, as we get close to ending here, I, I want to quickly ask you for people I, I encounter all the time who are resist feelings. <laughs> and yes. so what's, what are some steps or what, what's something that someone can do if they are that person that suppresses and runs from feelings. Like how can they, how can they, how can they entertain the idea of feeling them or how can they start to do that? Well, you're going to love this one. <laughs> the food. If you're struggling with food, food will tell you. So food, foods that we struggle with, whether we say I shouldn't have that or why do I want that or they're embedded with information. I believe that there's a, a part of ourselves that's trying to get our attention and about emotions uh, often that, that we don't know about and maybe don't even want to know about. But the foods are, are coded metaphorically. So a way to get to the emotions is, let's say you find yourself saying, oh my gosh, you know, I have a problem. People say, I have a problem with chocolate. You know, they think that the problem is with chocolate. So let's say, and then if you can explore the qualities of the chocolate and your experience around the chocolate, then you can start to see oh, maybe the problem isn't the chocolate, but maybe I'm frustrated about not having enough sweetness in my life. Oh, what does that mean? And what is what, what are the sweet emotions that I'm not allowing myself to feel because I'm afraid I'll be disappointed? And you start to track it. So if any of your listeners are interested, I, I do have a, a free gift that can break this code, crack the code of looking at the metaphors in the foods to find the feelings. So it goes something like this. 
Sweet foods usually have to do with not enough feeling, not enough sweetness in your life. Crunchy, salty foods typically are connected with unexpressed anger and frustration. Warm foods uh, have to do usually with a craving for emotional warmth. Spicy foods are usually connected with excitement, stimulation, and change. And chocolate. And this, we get this from Valentine's. It typically has something to do with sex and romance. Now, these are very general categories. They don't apply all the time. But it's a place to get started using the food. I call it following the breadcrumbs to find the emotions. It's not to say, because this would even be for someone who has a pretty neutral relationship with food. It's not yes, to say. all of us, yeah, all of us do yeah, this. No, yeah. no, no. It's not like, oh, people who have food problems. No, we all do this. And it's really revealing when you can track it. And it then it just go, oh, that's what it's about. And it it helps you be more accepting of the emotions that are there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so, interesting. so if anyone wants a, a P, I have a PDF on this. It's a little book on finding the connection with your food and feelings. And you can go to lightofthemooncafe.com forward slash fr for fearless rebel <laughs> oh cool a link well i'm gonna i will i will link to that in the in the show notes for this episode as well which is at summer forward slash nine zero well and beyond that where can people find more of you they can find me at the light of the moon cafe.com or my website which is dr anita johnston.com uh, Okay, perfect. And I looked it up while you were while you were telling the story that my stroke of insight is by Jill Bolt Taylor. Yeah, thank you. It looks mm-hmm. like she has a TED Talk too, which I she think has we'll a have to check out. TED Talk. Um, yeah, it's really great. She had she's someone who had a stroke, and because she was a brain scientist, she was able to track what was going on while it was happening. It's a fascinating story. Oh, I've heard about that. Okay, yeah, I, I don't yeah, think yeah. I, yeah, a friend of mine told me about it, but I never watched it. I'm gonna have to yeah. check that out. I love this stuff. So thank you. I didn't get to 90% of the things I wanted to talk to you about. So we'll have to have you back on the show again. Lovely. Um, uh, do you, I, I quickly do want to know, because I was going to ask you this offline, but I'll ask you in front of everybody. How did you find all of these stories? Were you, were you raised like when you were a kid? Were you, did you just collect stories and remember? How did you do this? Yeah, I was raised uh, with storytelling. And then my children went to Waldorf schools. I, I know they call them Steiner schools in, in Europe, where er, all the teaching was done in storytelling. And so that and then I started to see how easy it was to help people look at things in a new light uh, through stories. And my kids would come home with stories about Prince Division and Prince Waltification. I think, oh my God, I would know my, I would know my times tables by now if I had learned it that way. And so I I started using stories with my clients in my private practice, and then I just started collecting them. And when it came time to write the book, Eating in the Light of the Moon, and my my editor said, well, we need more stories, I thought, well, wait, I can't just find the stories. And, and But I did. I would go into libraries and, and children's section, and books would fall and land on my feet. I mean, I had a lot of uncanny experiences. And I so when I find a story that really resonates for me, I, I it's like when I feel it in my body, then I know my body is telling me, oh, this is a wisdom tale. This is a teacher. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, that was, um, <laughs> I, I was trying to figure out how, how you piece that together. That's really interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time, Anita. You're so it's great. You're doing really powerful work. And I, I really appreciate your your unique perspective. It's, it's, it's very awesome. Well, and thank you. I appreciate what you're doing. And I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you. Rock on. <laughs> Bye-bye. Such cool stuff in that episode. I love the stories. I think we lose touch with that when we get older. And maybe if we don't have kids like myself, we we start to lose touch with that creative and imaginative side of ourselves. So I, I really like how she, she pulls that in and, and causes that side of our brains to awaken. You can find all of the links mentioned. So the books that were mentioned and the free guide from Anita at summerinandin.com forward slash 90. That's nine zero. And I hope you are all doing awesome. And I will see you next time. Rock on. Rock on.